Buddy, we're going to have a scripture reading for you. So if you will, go ahead and take it away. Morning, Grace. I'm Alex, um, and the reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. I'm Judah. Um, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Excellent. Thank you, Alex and Judah. You guys can head on off to put that backstage. Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning at Grace. Uh, the part of our Mexico team is going to be heading down there. I encourage you to keep praying for them. And then uh, we saw the IF gathering. And men, if you're like, hey, they have something for women, what about me? We're going to be talking about opportunities to connect uh, for men at the end of the service and a bunch of community groups that were kicking off. So today we're second part of our message, a church for people who don't go to church. And as I kind of struggled with this message, I wanted you all to know that this is kind of a vision that I have for our community. And I want you guys to catch that vision. Because what happens in this community changes a lot of things. Changes the world around us, but it changes your life also. And that's what we want for you. So uh, last uh, year, I decided to help out with Cub Scouts. Any Scouts people, like kids in Scouts, or you were a Cub Scout or Boy Scout, there's absolutely no good people in here. Okay, I see a couple. Um, So I was a Cub Scout for two years growing up. It's been a while. I remember absolutely nothing from Cub Scouts. But we wanted to give Eli the opportunity to experience some of this. And so last year we said, okay, let's put Eli into Cub Scouts. And my wife looked at me and said, wouldn't it be great if we hosted in our home and you could help lead it? Which, you know, I've been married a while. In marriage speak, that means, Brian, you're going to lead it. We're having it in our house. So I said, yes, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. I have absolutely no clue. So they were restructuring after COVID, so they had no leaders. And I jumped in, got a co-leader, and we had 12, 6- and 7-year-olds in our basement once a month for a year. And it was a growing time for me. I'm not really kind of the kids person. I have kids, but I'm not a kids person, if that makes sense. Uh, And so we survived it. And I was like, man, we're doing pretty good. Me and my co-leader, we're doing pretty good. We got this thing. And then this year, our packs merged. And what that meant is we got a couple more kids. But we also got some new leaders into the mix. And what I realized very quickly was that they're scout leaders and they're scout leaders. We were kind of on the first end of that. We're like, oh, no, we're doing good. And then these guys came and were like, holy cow, have we been doing scouts? These these guys, um, they like eat, sleep, breathe scouts. They've done every training, I mean, hours upon hours. I never knew there could be so much training in scouts or nomenclature, or acronyms, or anything. It's like being in the government. Like, there's everything there. And one leadership meeting with this new guy there, he's talking all this stuff, and he's throwing out all these acronyms. And I was like, I'm looking around, I'm like, am I the only one that has no clue what's happening? I raised my hand, and I asked a basic question. The look on his face. It's like, you would have thought I've, like, insulted his mother. He's like, what, you don't know this stuff? What's wrong with you? I knew very quick. It was like that Southwest commercial, Want to Get Away? That's where I was. I was done. I was like, okay, I immediately know, like, this dude is up here, and I'm 
clearly way down here. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? Where there's just this gap, this superiority gap where authority is kind of lorded over you. It feels awful, doesn't it? Like it leaves you restless. It re- leaves you anxious. It leaves you frustrated. And you realize, man, this just is not my place. Well, what if we could create a place where that didn't happen? What if we could create a place where there was none of that superiority complex reigning over us, where we didn't have to feel that way again? Well, I believe Luke 4, Jesus' second temptation, helps us wrestle with that idea. What this can look like gives us an insight of why this happens, but then how do we create this place? So Luke 4, 1 through 2, I want to read it again. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. These two verses set the stage for all of Jesus' temptation experiences. These three tests that he goes through. And there's a couple things that we have to notice is that, you know, 40 days in the wilderness, it harkens back to Israel's journey in the wilderness for 40 years, where they were tested, where they went through trials. And so there's all these illusions here And it's important that during this time in the wilderness, there's two other characters with Jesus, right? The spirit and the devil. Now, we get caught up on devil imagery. I don't know about you, but maybe this is your first time in church. It's like, okay, I knew things would get weird quick. We're talking about the devil already. Um, The devil is not so much a singular individual. A lot of our images from about the devil come from the Middle Ages. They aren't in the Bible. The Bible's very vague about it. But this is what this picture of the devil is. It's a noun. It's a general noun. It's not a pronoun. He's an accuser, slanderer, adversary, and it means from the verb to obstruct or oppose. This is important because when we see Luke 4, 1 and 2, who's leading Jesus into the wilderness? Who's leading him? The Spirit is. To be tempted. Now that, in my mind, felt a little funny. I don't know if it feels weird to anybody else. The Spirit of God is leading somebody to be tempted. And I think that understanding of tempted is a little bit limited. So, you know, when I think of being tempted, I don't really think of being tempted in a positive or neutral way, right? Like temptation's always bad, right? I don't know if anybody else is with me, but like I don't feel tempted to be nice to somebody. It's not like, oh man, I'm feeling really tempted to give that person a hug and make their day. Like I don't I don't think that. It just doesn't come naturally. But in the Greek, this word has a much broader sense. It comes from perizo, which means uh, something more along the lines of to test, to prove, examine. And what applies most to our story is, is the purpose of ascertaining its quality, what one thinks or what, how one will behave. So Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to see what he thinks about himself and how he will react. Jesus was just baptized and the Spirit of God descends on him and says, you are my son. Will Jesus live according, will he think it according to his new identity and the mission that God has given him? See, Jesus is on a journey to begin a new purpose, a new community. And this testing period is a testing period to see how will Jesus respond? Will he give in as others have before him or will he stay true to who he is? Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness for this purpose, Deuteronomy 8.2. 
It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. To humble and test you. There's that word again. In order to what? To know what was in your heart. That's the purpose of the test. Jesus is brought into the wilderness to kind of see what is inside of him. So what is the test? What test does Jesus face? Luke 4, 5 through 8. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This test, what Jesus faces, is a test on authority. What will he do with authority? Will he be like my scout friend, the scout guy, if you will, where there's that sense of authority with superiority? We've seen this play out a lot. Authority with a sense of superiority. Will he give in? See, Jesus has showed the kingdoms of the world. And this is, this is an interesting side note. Kingdoms of the world, I always read this as a kind of, you know, he's up on a high place and he's looking at all this land, almost like the Lion King moment. Everything in the sun is, you know, kind of that sense. This is all yours. That's not the word used here in Greek. It's referring to people. And we know this because Rome has written on this. When, it talks, when Rome talks about its ownership, it doesn't use this Greek word cosmos where it talks about land, the world, the earth. It uses oikomenos, which ta- refers to a crowd of people. And every time Rome uses it, it talks about in the sense that Rome has ownership over these people. And so what does the devil do? Trying to kind of get in the way of Jesus' true mission, he says, will you have ownership over this group of people? Takes them up to a high place. Look at all the people. You can own those people. They can be yours. You can do with them what you want if you worship me. Jesus calls this out himself. It's something that they knew about Rome, Matthew 20. Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's a different sense, right? Having authority and lording it over. You get the nuance there, right? Like, it's one thing to have authority, but it's another thing to lord it over them. See, Jesus is, or the devil is trying to get Jesus to seize authority over people. To see it and take it, to lord it over others. Now, if you know the Bible, you may be thinking, Brian, but the Messiah was meant to rule and reign over people. Like John writes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is God and he rules over people. And that's true. But at this point in Jesus' ministry and the purpose of his life, what the devil is doing is showing him an opportunity to shortcut the suffering, shortcut the serving, shortcut humility, and just see authority and take authority, just like Rome tended to do. See, Messiah was meant to rule over, but what the devil was offering was a shortcut. If you think back to Genesis, there's a lot of amazing parallels. So Luke 3, Jesus is baptized, right? And we have Jesus in the water, and the Spirit comes down over the water, rests on Jesus. And then God speaks. And out of that speaking, he declares an identity and a purpose on Jesus' life. And then he goes into testing where, a slander, where, where an individual slanders God's name. 
challenges God's character, calls God into question. Think about Genesis 1. You have the waters of creation, the spirit moving over the waters. And then what happens? God speaks. And he creates. And he gets you humanity and he creates and he speaks and gives them an identity and a purpose to rule over creation. Then what happens to Adam and Eve? What's next? They're tested by someone who slanders God. And this story is drawing all these really cool parallels. There's actually so many uh, on the Grace app. There's a podcast I put in there because there's a lot of parallels here between Israel's wilderness wandering, between Noah, between Jesus. It's really neat to see how all these things hyperlink. But the story is looking at Jesus saying, will he respond the way that Adam and Eve did? Adam and Eve saw the fruit and they took the fruit. The devil is taking Jesus to a high place, showing him something. Will he take it? Will Jesus see and take as the history of humanity is? Or will he act different? One thing I love about grace, why my wife and I have been coming since 2007, is because as a church for people to go to church, there's often not a sense of superiority. Like that's what makes you guys kind of cool. I don't feel like I'm constantly looking, you know, nobody's kind of lording it over me, who they are, how awesome they are. But if you've been part of a church, you know that's not always the case. I know we've heard dozens and dozens of stories of people that have walked out of church for that very reason. So a little family history of me. My mom um, grew up in a broken home with alcohol, drug abuse. And in high school, she left the house and got married to my dad, who was a significant amount older, fleeing a bad situation. Now, my dad had his own bad situation. He... Grew up in an alcoholic home with abuse. He dropped, he, he ran away from home in ninth grade and dropped out of high school, never finished. Done, ninth grade, like went on with his life and figured it out. And uh, he had a pretty rough life, which led him down his own road of alcohol. And by the time I came on the scene, um, this is him, by the way. He's a happy looking guy. This is my picture of him. This is basically how he would dress every, every day, either that or a T-shirt. Uh, every now and then he'd throw a flannel over it. But uh, he walked into church twice my whole life. He walked in like this. Um, he always had a beer in his hand, usually had a cigar in his hand. I remember growing up driving in the truck with him to jobs and errands, and he would have a beer in one hand and a cigar in the other. And later on, I'm realizing, okay, this isn't the best parenting decision, but, you know. 10 o'clock in the morning, too, so it wasn't really the best way to start the day. Um, but he would walk into church, and we attended one of those churches that had that level of superiority. And he walked in. He didn't clean up. He walked in the way he was. And this was a church where you wore your Sunday best. Like you had to, to prove to God that you looked good, you smelled good, you acted right, and then you would be acceptable. And he was greeted with the looks and the tones that communicate to him very quickly, you do not belong here. Walked in twice, walked out both times before the service ever ended in a rage. Because he didn't look the part, he didn't sound the part, he didn't act the part. Jesus has some really powerful words about this, and I know it, it creates a lot of pain. If you've ever been there, it, you know it's not fun. It's not an experience you want to relive. Matthew 23, Jesus confronts it just in a very powerful way. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That means they have a place of authority. They know God's 
word. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you because they're teaching God's word. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, the church gets a lot of flack for hypocrisy. The next verse is actually what grabs my attention. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Woe to you, Pharisees, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying. Story after story of people trying to connect with God, but that superiority shuts them out. Breaks my heart. Now, it's easy in my mind to see Jesus confronting the Pharisees because, right, they're religious bigots. Like, they're the jerks of the jerks, right? Like, they, we just know from Scripture that they are the bad people in the story. Like, they're the, they're the bad people. But I have to imagine Jesus would confront many of our churches the same way. Many of our churches. I don't think that's necessarily the case with grace. But it is a test for grace. Do you think, and this occurred to me yesterday as I was mulling over this, do you think the Pharisees realized they were so bad? Do you think they're just like, ah, oh, man, yeah, I'm really religious, but I'm really horrible with people? I, I don't know if they felt that way. I don't know if they realized it. Or were they just honestly like, man, I am pursuing God with everything in me, and I want to know him as good as possible, so my bar is going to be way up here. And I'm not going to allow anybody else to drag my bar down. And maybe that feeling, that view snuck in. They never realized it. So there's a fundamental life question that I want to share with you guys. That if you get this answer right, if you figure this out, it'll really solve a lot of things. Especially if you're married. Figuring this one question out will fix a lot of things. Here it is. How long is too long? To hold open the refrigerator door. <laughs> ten, seconds. ten seconds. I hear ten seconds. That's not too bad. So hear me out on this. Joanne and I had been married about seven years. And this issue came to a head for us about year seven. And uh, I quickly realized that we had two different styles. See, she would open the door and time would stand still. It's like she was waiting for that thing to appear. And if she focused long enough, it would appear. And she was just standing there with hope and anticipation. Then it would appear. There it is, finally. And she would grab it and take it to the counter, leaving the door open. <laughs> setting it on the counter, doing something with it. And then going back. Well, Savage does that, right? Like, crazy people do this. So I'm more of like a snatch and grab. I visualize it before I get to the door. I calculate where it is in the refrigerator before I get to the refrigerator. I open, I grab, and I shut. Done. Simple to the point. So how would I fix this error in my spouse? I began by directly confronting it. I'm still married. It usually had a tone with it, right? If you've been in a situation, you know nothing doesn't have a tone at this point. It's like kind of that tone of, what's wrong with you? Nobody does this. It's not human. It's not normal. 
I realized the tone didn't work. So I resorted to a look. One day, she had had the door open for 37 minutes. And I was so proud of myself. I said nothing, nothing at all. But man, did I stare hole through that door. And I remember, you know, I'm just like furious. My eyes are getting big. And she's got that door open. She's just peeking down in there. All of a sudden, she pops up and says, what's wrong with you? It's like, how did you see that? She could feel it. Without ever saying anything, she could feel it. What did she feel? She felt something was fundamentally wrong with her. That she was the wrong person. I was communicating that she was less than. Now, we're not the Pharisees. But have you ever, with your tone, your look, your body language, communicated to somebody that they're not welcome? Or they're not loved? Or they're not the right person? Or they're in the wrong place? See, this test is really subtle. I think the Pharisees got there over time, not realizing what they were doing. We may not be Pharisees, but it happens way too easily. And it kills churches and it kills relationships. Even the small things, that tone, that look, that body language communicate a big difference. What does Jesus say to the test? He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this is a a great statement. It's kind of the top point. But from this, everything else flows. Because when we're worshiping and we're serving God, it impacts all our relationships. It impacts our view of ourselves. And what I find really interesting is Jesus faces this test where the devil says, see the authority and take it. See the people and take them. Lord over them. He says, no. And then he gives this message. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Same chapter. To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. Liberty to the oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor. The devil tells him to lord it over and he's going to liberate. It's completely different. Here's what Jesus is telling us. Humility is healing. Humility is healing. With churches, in our relationships, in our communities. Humility opens the door for us to serve God and love others. To create a right place where people can experience God, a church for people who don't go to church, we need to be inviters, not deniers. It's a big change. So many churches and the Pharisees were focused on being deniers, making it hard for people to enter. We want to be a place of inviters, not deniers. So I want to give you three quick steps that will help us be inviters. It'll lead to humility and bring healing. Three steps, show up, join in, and be real. The very first one, first step, show up. This could be on Sunday at a community group, in your regular relationships. I know some people that come to church every Sunday, like their attendance record's off the charts. Like they're the best of the best. They're here every second it's open, but they look no different than somebody who comes once a year. They think by being just in a building, they become like Jesus. Showing up is not enough. It's how we show up. I can show up in my home and sit on the couch with arms crossed. Changes nothing. When we show up and allow others to show up, are we welcoming them with a smile, that handshake, getting their name, being that welcoming person that says, I don't care what you just came from. You're here for this moment and God wants to meet with you. 
It's the story of my dad. He showed up twice and he was shown out. He said, you're done. Second step, we have to join in. It's not enough to just show up. We have to be engaged. Whether it's in a community group or on Sundays, you know, leaning in. It's not the arms crossed saying, I'm not going to let anything get to me. It's leaning in, being curious about the content, about the Bible, about the person next to you. Being curious, fully engaged, joined in with what's going on in their life. Humility says, what can I learn and how can I become more like Jesus? That's when we start inviting change into our life. Hebrews 5.11. Author says, we have much to say about this, the gospel of Jesus. But it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. They quit being curious. They quit inviting God's word in. They quit inviting curiosity and discomfort in to their lives and they could no longer grasp who Jesus was. Third step, we have to be real. See, authority can get easily distorted. Superiority puts on a facade, a face over tops of a, and it taints what God is calling us to. And this kills churches, kills relationships. Look at what Paul says, Romans 12, 3. For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Paul had to remind the church to be humble, to be real. He says that being real is only possible when we have a high view of grace. He says, by the grace given to me. Grace is the thing that allows us to be inviters, not deniers, because it realizes everything is equal under Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, we are all on the equal footing in front of Jesus. And that grace allows me to be real and vulnerable with you and allows you to be real with me because there's no judgment. There's no superiority. Can we be this kind of church? Can we create that here? Do you think it's possible? Can we create those types of community groups, those relationships that everybody walks to the door knows that they're invited in? That just because they showed up, we won't show them out because they don't fit who we're hoping for. We need to show up, join in, and be real. Only when we do this can we find rest. What does your test look like right now? Which step do you need to take to pass this test? Is it showing up? Is it joining in? Is it being real? Where are you? As you think about your relationship with God and with others. At Grace, we want to be a place where everyone is welcome and your curiosity, your challenges are welcome. Let's pray. God, help us where we've come to church but haven't actually showed up. Where we've built walls between us and others. And for those times that we sat on the bench and never fully joined in, give us boldness. God, we want to pass the test the way that you pass the test. Not seeing and taking, not building barriers, not denying others, but inviting others in. Because we know that when we do that, we reflect your humility and it brings amazing healing. Most importantly, prove the quality of our hearts. Give us courage to be real with you, with ourselves, and in others. In Jesus' name, amen.